Okay. If you have a Bible with you, please open up to Galatians chapter 4. Or your Bible app to Galatians chapter 4. Does anybody actually carry a Bible anymore? I know Tom does. Mike does. Oh, there we go. Oh, yeah, we, have a, we actually have a few actual physically printed Bibles in the house today. Pretty impressive. But I think the overwhelming majority of us have switched over to, to Bible apps. I get it. Oh, God, it's so good. Yeah, he is awesome. So, Galatians chapter 4. We're working our way through the book of Galatians. We're just past the halfway mark. We began chapter 4 last week. Now, according to Acts of the Apostles, Paul took at least four missionary journeys, probably more. Acts 13 lets us know that he went to Cyprus and southern Asia Minor. Acts 16, <clears throat> excuse me, that he went to southern Asia Minor and Macedonia, primarily Corinth. Acts 19, that he went to Asia Minor and Macedonia again, but now primarily Ephesus. And according to Paul, once he left Macedonia in Acts 20, he was on another journey assigned to him by the Holy Spirit to go to Rome via Jerusalem. Now Paul visits the Galatians on his first missionary journey. Some church historians or theologians may argue about the dates of exactly when this happened. My research seems to indicate that Paul most likely visited Galatia somewhere between the years 45-47 AD, and it was nearly a decade later, somewhere between 55 and 57 AD, that he wrote this letter to the Galatians. Between his initial visit and the writing of the letter, there was trouble brewing in Galatia. That's the reason why he wrote. Some Hebrew believers were sowing lies among the truth of the gospel. And Paul's addressing them. Jesus spoke concerning this very dynamic in his parable of the weeds from Matthew 13, verses 20, 24 to 30. This is what Jesus said. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servant came to him and said, Sir, did you sow, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them out? No, he answered, because while you're pulling out the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the wheat and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into the barn. This parable is primarily about uh, the end times <laughs> and the great judgment seat. Now, however, I think that there's still some application that can be made that there's good seed that can be planted 
like the message of the gospel, and still weeds uh, from the enemy can come and infiltrate and be planted among uh, the good seed. I think that's exactly what's happened in Galatia. Paul went there on his first missionary journey, and he planted good seed and good soil to good people. He told them the message of the gospel of grace. And after he left, the enemy came, or people who are being used by the enemy, Hebrew believers, and they sowed wheat, weeds among the wheat. They sowed bad seed in this soil. The truth of the gospel, the good seed that Paul had sown among the Gentiles, is that the law had been fulfilled, and that we were set free from its control, that we'd received the cure for sin and been delivered from its bondage. That's all good news. The weeds that these Hebrew believers had sown in to Galatia, it was that the law had not been fulfilled, and that adherence to the Mosaic law was still required. Or in other words, the Hebrew believers are claiming that in order to be a follower of Jesus, you first need to be a good Hebrew by following Hebrew religious rules, regulations, and traditions. And as a result, the Galatians are deceived. They're deceived by these Hebrew believers and, and their weeds that they've sowed um, among the gospel wheat. And the problem with deception is this. It is true for the Galatians then, it's true for us now. The problem with deception is you don't know you're deceived. <laughs> right? If you're deceived, you don't know it. That's why you stay within the deception. It isn't until there's an epiphany, until the light comes on, the eyes are open, the truth is revealed, that you're in deception, that you can be free from it. And Paul's writing this letter to people who don't know that they've been deceived. And so Paul sends this letter, it's sent, and he's passionately communing, communicating the truth to these people he loves, with the hope of separating the wheat from the weeds, awaking them from their deception, and setting them back on the right path. And so, so far, Paul's argued against the false accusations that have been hurled against him. They've said that he's a people pleaser, and only telling people what they want to hear. They've, been, they've made the accusation that this gospel of grace, that it's false that it's not a true gospel, that it's actually a man-made gospel and not the gospel divinely by divine inspiration, which is what Paul's claiming, that he'd received this message from Jesus himself by divine revelation. And he's arguing against the, the, the push of these Hebrew believers that are demanding these new Gentile converts uh, that they be required to follow the old covenant laws of Moses, uh, specifically circumcision. Paul has spoken the truth in the first three chapters passionately and powerfully. He has bluntly challenged the Galatians. He has refuted the arguments of these Hebrew believers. He's laid out a clear, logical, historical explanation of the gospel. And to date, he has used culturally relevant language and analogies to help the Galatians understand the truth of the gospel and in what ways they've been deceived. He's also employed um, the, the example of the patriarch Abraham uh, to communicate that what this is all about is a relationship 
of faith in God, a relationship of trust with God. So he uses Abraham to drive that point home. Beginning with verse 8 of chapter 4, Paul challenges the Galatians directly. Let's pick up there. Verses 8 to 11 of chapter 4. Paul writes, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God's. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Are you observing, you are observing, special days and months and seasons and years? I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. So in other words, Paul's saying, you went from legalism to relationship with God Almighty. Why on earth would you go back to legalism? Now in verse 8, in verses 8 and 9, Paul uses the word no. And in verse 8, he uses one Greek word. In verse 9, he uses another. In verse 8, Paul uses, when he says, Formerly you did not know God, but were slaves to those who by nature are not God. The word he uses for know is Ido. And it, it means basically to the, this. It means to see or to know by observation. In other words, it's speaking about information, to know about. The Galatians didn't even have this level of knowledge concerning God. They were, in fact, enslaved to those who are by nature not gods. Or as the Passion Translation puts it so well, before we knew God as our Father and we became His children, we were unwitting servants to the powers that be, which are nothing at all. So Paul's saying, that you were once in bondage to gods who are not gods at all. And at that time, you didn't even possess information about the true God. So what are these gods that are not gods at all? Well, they're the false gods. They're the man-made idols. Concerning this, commentator Matthew Poole writes, You paid religious homage unto idols, which are gods, not by nature and essence, but only in the opinion of idolaters. Which was a more miserable bondage and servitude that the Jews were under, who actually knew the true God. So that's, that's the word no from verse 8. In verse 9, he uses a very different word and he uses it twice. Verse 9 says, But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to these weak and miserable forces which you... To which you be, to which, excuse me, marbles in my mouth this morning. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Here we have a very different word. When he uses the terms know and known, the Greek word used here is gnosko. It's very different from from Ido, meaning information. Very different. Gnosko is a knowledge that's gained by experience, not just observation, but by engaging in experience. There's one thing to observe and gather, gather information. It's quite another thing to know something because you got your hands dirty, because <laughs> you were involved with it, right? Because you experienced it. And... 
Gnosko is a, it's not a um, superficial experience, it's a deeply intimate and extremely personal experiential knowledge. So the difference between Ido and Gnosko is the difference between religion and relationship. It's the difference between information and intimacy. It's the difference between being a fan and being a trusted friend. The difference is huge, right? I mean, many of us have, you know, sports fans. I like the New York Giants. I'm a huge fan of their quarterback, Eli Manning, right? I've, I, I, have, I know lots of information about Eli Manning. I've read countless articles about him. I can tell you some of his statistics. I know that he's won two Super Bowls against the Pirates and both uh, against the Patriots, and but both times, right? He was the MVP, you know, of the game, and both of them will come behind. I know lots about. I'm a fan of my favorite player. I don't know him. I don't know if he likes Brussels sprouts or not, right? I don't know what his favorite meal is. I don't know what his favorite flavor of ice cream is, right? Now I know Nadine. Intimately. I know everything about her. I mean, after all these years together, barely are words always necessary. We get to look at each other, body language, expression on our face. I know exactly what she's thinking. And her me, right? That's the difference between no, between Ido and Gnosko. And what we've been invited to, what's been offered to us, is that kind of intimate knowing with God, that experiential knowing with Him. This is the choice between the Galatians, and they seem to be going back to Ido and willing to sacrifice Gnosko. It's the choice that faces us. And then sometimes I think it's a choice that faces many of us who've been churched for a long time. Anybody here ever been a part of a, a church group and change happens in the church group? And a bunch of people leave the church because they didn't like the change, right? They're very much settled in their ways. Right? And so something new happens. Life gets breathed into a group. Even if it's God who shows up and he changes things. Messes up the system, right? Well, that's, that's intimacy. That's gnoscope. That's that's experiential. It's not, it's not rote. It's not ritualized. It's unpredictable. And some people prefer the predictability. I remember years ago, I was a young pastor reading a book, and they said the, the seven, I think it was seven words, that kill every church. We never did it this way before. Right? <laughs> and somebody comes in, usually some young upstart pastor, and he's got new ideas and wants to do new things. Right? Or even worse yet, the Holy Spirit shows up and he wants to do all kinds of wants to come in and actually act like God. <laughs> and people don't like to change. They like the way it was better. Anyway, back to, back to Galatians 4. So given this huge difference between Ido and Gnosko, given this vast contrast, given this vast chasm, I mean, a gap that would eclipse the Great Canyon, Paul asked this question at the end of verse 9. How is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? 
It's as if Paul's saying, are you kidding me? <laughs> this is the worst trade ever. How could you possibly want to go back? Sometimes I like to read the King James Version because it's got unique ways of saying things. The second half of verse 9, this is what the King James says. How ye turn again to weak and beggarly elements, <laughs> whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage. Weak and beggarly. That just kind of says something, doesn't it? And turning back to legalisms, the Galatians are not turning to a new era, they're turning to an old one. They're turning to the idea of what's sometimes referred to as works righteousness. Of works, legalistic works as a means of relationship with God. And then in verse 10, Paul, he writes this emphatically. Take note of the fact there's an exclamation point at the end of the sentence. He says, are you observing special days, months, and seasons, and years? Man, he's frustrated that they'd actually return to the observance of Sabbaths and new moons and festivals and fasts. Jubilees. As laid out in the law of Moses. He says, you guys, are you actually going back to that? You can hear the exasperation in his voice in verse 11. He says, I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. Again, King James puts it this way. I'm afraid for you lest I have labored for you in vain. The word labored here literally means to labor to the point of exhaustion. And his exhaustion and his exasperation turns to pleading Verse 12, where he writes, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for, be, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify. If you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Paul is saying, after all we've been through together, how could you treat me so poorly now? When I came to you, I was sick. And instead of treating me like a burden, you treated me with honor. You treated me with great honor. You treated me with great honor and sacrificial love. So much so. <laughs> he says, you would have torn out your own eyes and given them to me. That's great honor. That's great sacrificial love. After all that, he's asking the question, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth. Concerning this text, commentator John Stott writes, in Galatians 1 to 3, chapters 1 to 3, we have been listening to Paul the Apostle, Paul the theologian, Paul the defender of the faith. But now, we're hearing Paul the man, Paul the pastor, Paul the passionate lover of souls. Here Paul's pouring out his heart to people he not only loves, but he considers friends. This is, this is pretty raw, heart-to-heart -heart 
communication. Just a little side note. Verse 13 references Paul's illness. Scripture is unclear as to what this illness was and, and how it is that it brought him to Galatia, just that he was sick, and as a result, he made a stop at Galatia, assumably to recover from his illness. And while there, he preached to them. Now, I found much speculation in my studies as to exactly what this illness was. Some believe it, it was a problem with depression. Some writers think it was a problem with epilepsy. Others think it might be connected to the, the thorn in the flesh that's mentioned in 2 Corinthians 12.9. I don't agree with that, but none of these can be established with any certainty. Some suggest that Paul's physical infirmity was some type of malaria common to the lowlands of, of Perga, which Paul visited in Acts 13. What we do know, what we know for fact, from Acts chapter 14, verses 19 and 20, uh, was that, that Paul was stoned and dragged outside the city of Lystra and left for dead. That we know. That happened in Acts 14. Some think that this was the cause of the physical infirmity he mentioned. They stoned him and they left him for dead outside the city. That's what happens when you get stoned. People gather around him and pray for him, and he says, you know, he got up from there. Um, I'm not sure that it means that he was fully restored or not. I'm just, this is a theory. Uh, but nevertheless, when Paul did go to the Galatians, he came to them weak. He came to them broken, and the Galatians received him, and they honored him, and they loved him. Paul is now brokenhearted by their change, by their change of heart toward him. Verse 17 and 18. Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us, so that you may have zeal for them. Now it's, it's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I'm with you. So simply put, Paul's saying here, don't trust these people, don't trust these, these Hebrew believers. What early on in Galatians, Paul refers to them as false believers. Don't trust these false believers and the lies that they're saying to you. Their intentions aren't good. They are pursuing you for their own selfish motivations and ambitions. He reminds them zeal is good. Passion is good, provided that its purpose is good. I, I've talked about, I like passion. I'm a big fan of passion. Right? Passion is, is, is like likened to fire. Passion, fire in the fireplace warms up the whole house, right? Passion in the right place, right? Take that same fire, put it on the living room rug, burns down the whole house. Right? So I'm a big fan of passion and zeal. I, I, I like it so much I tattooed the word on my left arm. Big fan of passion. But the purpose has to be good. And Paul's saying that the, these, these who have come after him, that their intentions are not good. These legalistic Judaizers' purpose is not good. Verse 19 to 20. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish 
I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. Paul's writing passionately. I would even say that there are portions of this, this letter. He's angry with them. He's very frustrated. Even in verse 20 here, it says that he's perplexed. Paul's saying, saying to them, choose me. Don't choose them. You're my children. You were birthed as a result of the workings of God through my life. I love you as a mother loves her children. Choose me in the way I've laid out before you. Don't go back to dead religion. Paul's saying how I wish I could speak with you face to face instead of writing this harsh letter, this blunt and passionate letter because I am perplexed. Other translations say because I'm in doubt concerning you. I'm dumbfounded by you. I'm at a loss for words. I'm completely baffled. I'm completely puzzled. Or as J.B. Phillips translates it, I honestly don't know how to deal with you. Right? Paul's, at, Paul's truly perplexed. He's exasperated. He doesn't know what to do with these people. He's loved on them. They've spent all this time together. They've shared life together. He was with them and he gave them the best of what he offered, and they loved on him even in his weakness. And now they're walking away from the truth, and Paul is, he's just blown away by this. I, I got to tell you, as a pastor, I, I get Paul's heart right now. Man, we've pastored a lot of people in a lot of churches over the years, and, and the truth of the matter is, if you're going to pastor a church, um, some people are going to walk away. And people will leave your church, and they'll do it for a whole variety of reasons. And you know, sometimes it's okay. They're, they're moving on. They've gotten all they can get from whatever we've had to offer, and it was it's it's time for them to go to the next place. And that's good. I get it. I'm I'm really okay with people leaving my church, especially if it's if it is to go on to another church. You know, maybe they've gotten all they can get from my well, and now they're going to drink in another well. That's awesome. Go drink. From another well, you know, be blessed. Grow to the fullness of your purpose in Christ Jesus. But then there are others, and it's just inexplicable. Um, it's not that they leave my church. They, they walk away from God, and I don't get it. I'm dumbfounded, you know. Um, and I'm as, I'm as brokenhearted when that happens as Paul is. I, I can tell you that it is truly heart-wrenching. To pour out your life into another and to watch them walk away from the faith, to watch them walk away from truth, it's to watch them walk away from an intimate relationship with God, it's just it just crushes me. Maybe that's the the pastor's heart inside of me. And so boy, I get I get where Paul's coming from today. I get why he's so fiery, so passionate in this letter. He's there's a desperation in, in Paul's writing saying, Come back. <laughs> You know, come back to the truth. Come back to the right way. Come back to freedom that you had in Christ Jesus. You know? Now, I believe that God can use any denomination. I got saved in the Catholic Church. I got saved, baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit in the Catholic Church as a 16-year-old. God will meet us anywhere. You know? And that's fine. But I've seen friends... Who've, who've lived a spirit-filled life experience, a spirit-filled 
church experience and then go back to traditionalism. And sometimes I, I want to grab them. I want to shake them. Like, what's going on? You know, talk to me. How, after all this time, you know, could you go back to such a uh, traditional, legalistic expression of faith? Please talk to me. You know, we've labored together. You know, we've stood at the front of the church together and prophesied over people. You know, together we've laid hands on the sick and we've seen them get well, you know. We've done stuff, man. How is this happening, you know? I, I have some friends, <laughs> even worse, they've gone to other religions. They've given up our Christianity, you know, all the way. And now they're doing some different kind of New Age stuff. And my head just goes, just blow, my head blows up. It's exposed. I think this is some of what Paul's feeling here. He said, there is life in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's life and there's freedom in him and in the power of the Holy Spirit that you are absolutely not going to find anywhere else. You're not going to find it by going back to the legalistic Judaism. I want to say to some of my friends, you're not going to find it going back to some legalistic expression of Christianity. God created us, you and me, to live in the fullness of the Spirit. Why on earth would we settle for anything less than that? It's beneath us. Why would we settle for anything less than living a supernatural life in the power of the Holy Spirit? Why? I, I can't fathom it. Is it messy sometimes? Yeah. Is it, is it complicated or frustrating sometimes? Sure. You think those other systems aren't? <laughs> Do you think walking away from God altogether and living in the world, is any, does that make it better? It doesn't make it better at all. Now i got to deal with all the junk of life. I, I don't have the, the power of God with me to help me get through it. This is Paul's frustration. This is his agony. <laughs> He's saying, guys, wake up. Wake up. Just stop it already. Come back to the truth. And he's tried everything so far, up until this point in chapter 4. He's spoken to them historically. He's spoken to them theologically. He's spoken to them rationally. And now, in this portion of chapter 4, from verses 8 to 20, he's speaking from a pastor's heart, passionately. I have great love and concern for these people. Absolutely astonished by them. So let's pray this morning. I bet there's not a person here that doesn't know someone who's living that, the life I just described. They, you know, they, they once walked in intimacy with God and for whatever reason, they're not doing it right now. They're, they're very much prodigals. They, they walked, they were in the family and they left the family. They went their own way. Let's pray for the spiritual Galatians among us in our lives, in our worlds. For those who once knew the way and have wandered. Oh God. My heart breaks. My heart breaks. Lord, we pray for these friends of ours, these men, these women, wherever they are. 
whatever they're doing at exactly this moment, for those who are spiritual prodigals, Father God, we cry out in the name of Jesus. Capture their hearts again. Jesus, you said that no one comes to you unless the Father draws them. Father, we ask that you draw every prodigal back to Jesus. Lord, I pray that you bring them to that place where they're disgusted with their surroundings. And remind them, oh God, that there was life in, the, in your house, Father. And Lord, as they come back, like the father and the prodigal son, we know you're looking for them. Run to them. Run to them. Wrap your arms around them. Draw them in to your affection. Put a new robe on them. Put sandals on their feet. Put a ring on their finger, oh God. Throw a party that they're back. The son, the daughter who's wandered off, that they come back home. Oh God, we want, we want to throw that party. <laughs> Look, we want to be part of that celebration. We want to hear that music and we want to dance. We want to eat that food with them. Oh God, let that be our hearts. Let that be our hearts, oh God. Show them just how great your love is for them. And Lord, I ask that you would use us as instruments to demonstrate that love and that affection. Lord, I pray that you do something in our hearts, in our minds, that we would never, ever give up on them. We never give up on them. Like you, even when we're faithless, the word says you're faithful to us. I pray, Lord, as friends, that even if they're faithless, that we would be faithful to them. That we would be faithful friends to them. That we would be such friends that they know on the way back, they could stop at our house and receive mercy and grace and love and affection and absolutely no judgment. Let it be so, God. Let it be so, God. Work in the prodigals. Draw them to you, Lord. Work in us as the prodigals return. And make us more like you and how we respond. As I'm praying this morning, I'm reminded that there's a mass exodus happening from organized religion today. Every sociological expert says it's so. They got term, terminology for it now. Called the duns. People, they've been in the faith for 25 years and they're done. They're walking away. Oh God, I pray for every single one of them. Draw them to you. Draw them the fullness of life in you. Do it, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. We have Angie and Colin come back up, prepared to lead us in a final song. Now, at the beginning of my message, I, I asked you to um, be listening for, for words and knowledge as these guys get, get ready to lead us in a final song. Does anybody have a word that they'd like to share? Has God spoken to you? Tom, please.